0: U.S. Cellular has small-town roots, so we tell it like it is. That's why at U.S. Cellular, we don't have any hidden requirements. You can get the latest phone without activation fees, required phone trade-in, or anything like that. No surprises or tricks up our sleeves. Just the phone you really want in a state-of-the-art nationwide network, built from your town up. We're U.S. Cellular, America's locally grown wireless. Learn more at uscellular.com.
1: We, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome, everyone, to Garden of Doom, and we are deep into theme month. Uh, And here we are We're going to talk about Star Trek today and because listen, I'm a casual Star Trek fan I am not one of those that you're a Star Wars person or you're a Star Trek person Just you know, I I like them both. I will say that with the horrendous latter six or seven movies in Star Wars that uh, Star Trek probably has to have the edge in in quality uh, By a wide margin at this part at this point anyway Um, that said uh, I am no expert on Star Trek, but I know a lot of people love it. It's got conventions, it's got cults and cult following. That is, <laughs> I don't want to confuse it with regular cults because we covered that last, uh, you know, a few several times on this show, including a uh, survivor of Scientology. So I don't want to confuse the two. Anyway, point is, I'm not an expert, so I found some experts. So my guests today are Elizabeth McDowell and Brian Moss, who are both self-avowed Trekkies. Uh, found each other or uh, reconnected or confirmed their status through uh, Star Trek groups and you know without me botching it I'm going to let them introduce themselves so we'll ladies first I'm old so chivalry so we'll start with Elizabeth you can introduce yourself and tell your your Star Trek origin story and then we'll move on to Brian
3: so i'm elizabeth mcdowell as uh jeff mentioned and i am a star trek fan who became a star trek fan as an adult i am a millennial and i would have been about the right age to watch tng when it first aired but because of my very religious parents and all kinds of things i didn't get an opportunity to see it so i started watching it when i was probably about 28 or 29 And I started with TNG, the next generation, fell down a rabbit hole. And since then, I I would call myself a fanatic. Maybe I would. um, But there was something about the series that really spoke to me. And also finding out that the fan community of Star Trek fans is such an interesting place. So that kind of definitely helped me along in my fandom. Whenever I'm not, geeking out about star trek i host a podcast called murder she woke with a friend of mine about uh, murder she wrote and if you're so inclined you should check it out
1: so thank you for that brian tell us about yourself and your star trek story
2: thanks um my name is brian moss i'm 44 years old i've been a fan of star trek probably since i was about maybe five or six um, it used the the original series used to come on in syndication when I was a little kid and I would remember my mom would always have it on whenever I came home from school and we'd always play Star Trek on the playground at recess and um, just a huge dork about the series um, I collect Star Trek novels for fun um, I can probably quote the plot of pretty much any episode title you throw at me and I'm, I'm just here for it all. Um, It's just inspiring and fun, and it's a
1: good way to engage my brain. Okay, so let me let the audience know that, uh, like our guests for the MCU, they probably love the subject matter too much. Um, But hopefully I can control them better than I could control Mr. Yari, who, who can't be controlled in his love, and I gave them sort of strict instructions, so let's try and keep it to 90 minutes to go through the original series, the next generation, Deep Space Nine, and I believe Voyager, that's considered the big four. Now, I'm old enough to remember, Star Trek was probably first run while I was still alive, but I'm sure I watched it mostly in syndications. Well, it's hard to tell when you're that age, but in reruns, I you know watched it for years and years and years. Uh, I also remember the Star Trek cartoon, which was the same animation as the Planet of the Apes cartoon, so I always pair those shows. I watched yeah. The Next Generation, but I didn't watch it religiously, but i probably seen them all. Um, I picked up Deep Space Nine, not immediately, but I did see it until the end. I actually thought I missed the last episode, got mad at myself, and then I searched on the internet, found it, and realized that I did see it, and I just didn't like the end. Um, (laughs) Voyager, I probably saw some episodes, but I wasn't really down with it. Um, I've seen some episodes of Enterprise. I have saw the first season of Discovery when they ran it on regular CBS when they needed new programming during COVID as opposed to the all-access. Uh, and I'm sure I've seen, you know, I've seen most of the movies going back to Kirstie Alley's introduction as Mr. Savick and V'ger and and all of the movies. But we're going to try to stick to the big four of TV, and I am now spending their time that I gave them. So... Lady and Gentleman, please, without further ado, take take us through it in whatever order uh, that you guys, I know, have practiced.
3: So Brian had actually put together a really interesting outline of kind of why he loved the show and important themes in that. But I think what we should do really quickly first is just go through bullet points of the four just to kind of give a little bit of background coloring for those who haven't seen it and we have divided this up i was going to take tOS the original series and the next generation so i'm just going to get through this as fast as i can and i guess interrupt me if you have questions but hopefully this is all pretty straightforward um so the original star trek uh it was the uh, the first season aired in september of 1966 prior to that there had been a pilot episode that didn't rate very well and it was not what you think of whenever you thought of star trek with the uh the set and the types of aliens you'd encounter so that was scrapped in favor of season one which was the crew of captain kirk uh, Mr. Spock, the science officer and, and first officer and, uh, you know, Dr. Leonard bones, McCoy and Scotty, Mr. Scott, the Montgomery Scott, the, uh, um, the chief engineer and the other ones that we know really well, uh, communications officer for Michelle Nichols, um, Sulu played by George Takehi, and Pablo Chekov the young man played by Walter Koenig. So that ran for three years. It was canceled, but then it kind of developed a cult following. And that's where you get a lot of people who were um, uh, going to conventions. And eventually it got so popular that they basically rebooted it with a series of movies, the first one being in 1979. So that, that's kind of the, and, and there were six movies. The first one was in 79, the motion picture, and the last one was the undiscovered country in 1991. So this is, that's, that's basically where Star Trek starts. And just three interesting things of note. In Star in the first series, we meet three of the most important alien species that we get to know, which are the Vulcans, the eminently logical race, Um, the Klingons, who are more like the warrior race, though they're a little more multidimensional than that, as we'll get into. And then the Romulans who are basically, maybe this is oversimplifying it, but evil Vulcans. And they're warlike, but a little more insidious than the Klingons. The Klingons just tend to be very um, preoccupied with honor, whereas Vulcans are a little more shady. Or not Vulcans, uh, Romulans are a little more shady.
1: I, I have thought of the Vulcans sort of as like the Stoics, um, The m- would prefer to be pacifist or left alone to the extent possible. The Klingons, I think, were modeled after feudal Japanese society. So uh, warrior, but honor warriors and divided by... Divided or united by houses, uh, and this is oversimplification. And the Romulans, sort of sneaky, you know, and they, you know, named after the Romans, devious, warlike, but you know, you know, be, sort of like beware of Greeks bringing horses or bring, bearing gifts. So we always sort of sneaking around, never, never really know. Sort of like a heel in wrestling, you, you never really know where what their uh, allegiance is or their agenda is. Just you know, be careful. So it's hard to trust them, even even when your interests seem aligned.
3: That's pretty Absolutely. Yes. Good job. See, you remember more than you thought you did. And I would just say that um, while Vulcans do want to stay out of things, they're more of explorers and scientists um, than they are warriors. However, they they don't shy away from diplomacy, and they are involved um, in politics to a certain extent. They just are not particularly uh, ambitious in terms of conquering or battling and that kind of thing so um and i'm just going to jump ahead real quick to tng just to go through it real quick um in terms of the next generation that came on the air in 1987 after and you can correct me if i'm wrong brian this is just mostly stuff that i have kind of picked up from the internet and from lore is that because star trek had such a big resurgence and the movies were popular they decided to bring in a new the next generation you know uh, star trek the new class and this one it takes the place a hundred years or so after um the original series you know the original crew of the enterprise c they're all legends so this is the second enterprise this is an enterprise d and the captain is Jean-Luc Picard, played
1: by Patrick Stewart. Um, Commander Sir Patrick Stewart.
3: Sir Patrick Stewart, I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, uh, the, the first officer is Commander William Riker, played by Jonathan Frakes. Um, the Lieutenant Commander Data is an interesting character because he is an android, as we learn, and he's the only one of his kind, we think, until we meet his brother, Lore, which, again, is maybe a story for a little bit later. (laughs) Um, and then there's LeVar Burton, who just recently, and by recently, I mean, when we're recording this, which is July, uh, hosted a week on Jeopardy. I thought he did great. I haven't um seen any of it. would you say? Yeah. So I haven't seen seen it. Any of it. Oh, it was just a side note, it was kind of embarrassing because the the one guy like got like ten thousand dollars in the hole and it was it was like the worst Jeopardy performance ever, but LeVar Burton was just trying to be nice and it was it was whatever. Aww. So what we we'll also have on the ship besides an Android is a Klingon in the form of Worf, which is another interesting uh, development because in the original series, the Klingons were the sworn enemy of the Federation. And we see a lot of episodes in the original series involving Klingons. We also have, uh, chief medical officer, Dr. Beverly Crusher played by Gates McFadden and our counselor, Deanna Troy, who's played by Marina Seardis, who the counselor, the, um, character of Counselor Troy is half human, half uh, betazoid, which is another alien species that we meet in this series. Um, there are also a few of their notable crew. There's Dr. Catherine Pulaski, who was the doctor in season two, and she came back for a few guest spot, <laughs> yeah, spots. I can't talk today.
2: Wait, wait, can
1: we stop for a second uh, on Counselor uh, Troy? Wasn't she an empath?
3: Uh. So Betazoids, pure Betazoids, are telepaths. And since she's half human and half Betazoid, she is supposedly an empath, though I don't know whether this is the fault of the writers or just them not quite figuring out how that kind of ability was supposed to work but she the character and the situation kind of gets a lot of shit from people because a lot of times her empathy skills empath skills don't seem to do a whole lot of good and she'll say things like he's are they're obviously hostile while they're you know firing photon torpedoes at them like it's, it's that kind of thing which is i think in my humble opinion was a little bit of a waste of her character, but, you know, I wasn't, I was, you know, an infant when the show came out, so now, nobody
1: she asked me. She, she was not, uh, well, I'm not the expert, but I remember that her character seemed rather useless and frankly was used sort of in a more stereotypical, almost like the, you know, sort of the temptress kind of role, almost like a siren. Her empathy was confused with flirt- flirtation a lot, and I think that she had didn't she date both uh number one or whatever his name was, uh, and and also Wharf? Uh first of all, I just want to butt in
3: and say uh Will Riker is her Mzadi, which is uh beta zoid for beloved. Uh-huh. And they actually have a really interesting friendship and interaction over the course of the both the movies and the series. She does uh, get involved with work at the end, but I would just like to point out that Riker, her Imzadi, the the male part of that interaction, he gets around a lot more than she does. Yeah, well, you bet so. he does. Sure,
1: he he was uh, you know well he was trying to be Kirk.
3: Can I, oh, I can I tell a funny story about jonathan Frakes real quick and my dad it, it'll just take a minute you can cut it out if you want
1: no go ahead i'm not going to cut it out i'm definitely going to hear the story about jonathan Frakes and your dad
3: my dad and jonathan Frakes are the same age and they grew up in the or they were teenagers in the same part of pennsylvania like the lehigh valley area mm-hmm. and they didn't go to high school together but the one thing they did have in common was that my dad had a high school girlfriend and after they broke up the first person she dated was a jonathan Oh, okay so, so i thought that was funny and he didn't he just casually dropped it on me one day it was really great all right
1: so your dad and jonathan Frakes have traveled some of the same frontiers um anyway it was
3: high school
1: <laughs> it's it's <laughs> it still it's counts and and you and you left out or didn't get to Will Wheaton, the enemy of Doctor Sheldon Cooper, or frenemy.
3: Absolutely. Um, so Will Wheaton played Wesley Crusher, who was Doctor Crusher's son. He was a teenager and young adult on the show, and I hated him. A lot, a lot of people did, okay. and I feel like. I could see why, but I'm not sure that that was Will Wheaton's fault. I blame the writers because yeah. they weren't yeah, so. very good at at writing a adolescent teenage boy. Genius, a but boy genius. Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: So and, I'm
1: going to this over. I come from the second. generation where a lot of TV shows were ruined by introducing a young child or a baby. And when they star with it, 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 you're sort of in a deficit position when it's not a family trauma to begin with. It just it just seemed out of place for my 1987. Which remember, 1987, I'm 18 years old in 1987. So you know, I, I'm not really interested in in a 12 year old being on the starship. I, you know, I I want what I want. I want to see more Wharf. I want to see more Wharf beating beating people up. Yeah,
2: that's understandable. I mean, I I feel like. Seeing a kid on the bridge though might have been the grab for kids to get into Star Trek if they saw someone that looked like them involved in the story somehow, so Fair some of it makes sense, but the writing, like Elizabeth said, some of it is just really stilted and bad. And ugh.
3: True. All right. I, I will say it gets a little bit better as he gets older and kind of grows out of the bratty teenager phase, but in the first few seasons, it was a little rough. So, you know, I, Starfleet, we don't lie. Oh boy. Or the, the sweaters, the many ugly sweaters of, uh, Wesley Crusher. (laughs) Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna make Brian, uh, you know, kind of give his, uh, notes on the, the other two deep space nine and Voyager. Yes. Okay.
2: So, um, Star Trek Deep Space Nine um, premiered in 1993. Um, it actually came on during the sixth season of, of Star Trek. So, it was actually, you were getting double dosed every week of, of TNG and Deep Space Nine, which was cool if you were a Trekkie. So, um, one of the big, big deals about Deep Space Nine was that it showed the first um, African American captain as a regular character on the series so that was like a very huge progressive step forward in showing some, some good representation in star trek um the shtick was that um instead of it being set on a starship from week to week it was actually set on board of a, a, a space station so most of the stories were about you know aliens coming to the space station for the first time or politics around on um, the planet bajor which it was it was adjacent to so uh one of the missions of, of starfleet on that space station was uh, to help bring bajor into the federation bajor had been um uh occupied by the Cardassians, which were I, I don't know how to put them on the realm between klingons and romulans okay but they're not the this,
1: kardashians they're the card no
2: okay. no mr <laughs> was not involved in the making of the show so um um, Though
1: I just came up with an awesome comedy series. <laughs> oh
2: my gosh. Um, I don't know where you'd read Cardassians between Romulans and Klingons. I mean, they're definitely militaristic no like Klingons, but they're also super sneaky like Romulans. So um, it's kind of a kind yeah. of the best of both worlds. To I, use it. I, I figured that
1: they were sort of Romulan stand-ins, uh, because they wanted a new race uh, with this whole new mythology, but yeah, I find yeah. I find they be very similar to the Rom- Romulans without the relationship to the Vulcans,
2: right? Um, and also, there were a lot of parallels to Nazi Germany, where they were concerned because they were such an expansive militaristic race. And um, there are several stories that that really kind of drive that point home.
3: Um, well, plus the whole. Um, occupation of Bejor and a lot of the, the parallels between, um, you know, occupying this kind of vulnerable planet that's with, with military and industrial, um, kind of, I can't even think of what I'm saying, but basically they, they invaded like a, a more like peaceful, like kind of, is it agrarian planet? And yes, then they it. kind of, Very yeah. And then they kind of turned it into, you know, their own like they had mining operations and and it was it was basically like a, a parallel for for occupied like territory during World War Two. Yeah. And,
1: well, wasn't Bezier also like a holy planet? Like it was the center of a big mysticism, a, a big religion, or am I confusing that with something else?
2: No, you're you're on the nose, actually. Um, Captain Cisco, which is the uh, the leader of Deep Space Nine, the captain, I guess, um, he actually becomes a figurehead in, in Bajoran religion. Um, and that's kind of what he's already kind of at a mental crossroads when, when the story starts with him, he's lost his wife in a, in a battle with the Borg and he's just really sullen and not too excited to be there and hates everything and would, would rather retire. And then the Bajorians kind of adopt him as a figurehead called the Emissary into their religion. And um, his life pretty much changes after that. So he, he becomes more dedicated to sticking with his mission. and.
1: Can the kind of Are we? You just mentioned the Borg casually, and, I, and Elizabeth didn't mention the Borg during The Next Generation. Oh, I know. Are we going to circle back to I'm the sorry. Borg? No, it's okay. Oh,
2: let's talk about the Borg. Let's, let's okay. talk Borg
3: can i just interject something real quick sure about a lot of the events of deep space nine take place around a wormhole and it's a static wormhole which is apparently something that's pretty unusual for at least this part of the galaxy which um it, it's important for bajor because their gods their prophets supposedly live inside the wormhole so that's another
1: kind of part that or uh, Hang on. hang on a second being brought up. i'm texting with neil degrasse tyson right now he, <laughs> he says that, that it, it's unusual anywhere
2: as far okay. as Borg are concerned um the board we meet in early tngs run, right, i believe in season two of tng um they are uh, a robotic species i guess half humanoid half robotic and their whole shtick is to basically just assimilate the entire galaxy and quote unquote bring order to chaos, resistance is futile. I mean, aside from like Klingons, I think it's probably even fair to say that Borg are probably the most known race from Star Trek.
1: Yeah, and they are and they are at least two or three generations ahead technologically. And mm-hmm. where the Klingons are warlike and and you know you know, I, I don't know, like any villain you could think of, the Borg are really more like Ultron from the Avengers, like, I, I want to eliminate, e- either join me or get eliminated, kind of thing, but... Not but pretty
2: much. Yeah. yeah, get with the program or get out. Yeah. So, not not uh, even
1: but, Thanos. Thanos was just like 50%. Now, they, they were like, you're either, with, you're either with us or you're against us. When you're against us, gone. But... So, um, go in
3: terms of The Borg, they also, and this is something that we find out a little bit later in Voyager, is that they don't assimilate every species that they come in contact with. Only ones that have technology or knowledge or some whatever, something that will improve the Borg's experience um, as a species. Because um, they just want to, like with each, and, and this comes up in, the next generation when they uh they capture picard is they basically download all his starfleet information from his head and it becomes part of the collective so that becomes kind of a plot point throughout the series at certain instances
1: can i, so, I say something that is somewhat related to this that might surprise you all and maybe won't but there is a pretty large element of the of the world who thinks that Star Trek and its entire universe is equated to some type of socialism and sort of like evil that's in the internet, that basically like the antichrist is hiding in our technology, and a lot of them do advocate that we should just adopt a simpler life, uh, which is interesting that the Borg. D- Aren't interested in the sort of the more agrarian, the more pastoral, the more primitive, if you want to call it that way, uh, uh, peoples. Um, and they want to assimilate, and you know it. It's funny because it doesn't really matter if you're on the 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 left end or the right end, because it sort of all converges at the same point. You just it's just a disagreement as to who's at the head of the oligarch, whether it's it's satan and bloodlines you know they might may or may not be involved with aliens or whatever or if it's just you know greedy corporations you know which could also be tied into bloodlines who run the corporations but it's it's funny that like star trek is like their is like their sim is like their symbolic pop culture enemy um and that just hit me like a you know not like a truck, but sort of like a like a rock hit me in the head when when you mention that. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but if I don't say something, I I, I risk losing my thought forever.
2: No, it's it's a great thought though. Um, and it's kind of why we hope that Starfleet is a better option than Borg. I mean, I feel
1: like <laughs> good at the answer. End
2: of the day, their their goals are the same and that Starfleet wants to bring people into the fold, and and you know how how do I put this list? Um, like. Everyone kind of on the same page, and everyone have access to the same technology, and, and egalitarian,
1: fair- not forced, voluntary and egalitarian, not forced, yeah. more more communal, There's, which doesn't have to be communist, more more communal. This, Sorry, go ahead.
3: This also actually ties into the idea of the Prime Directive and first contact, because while the Borg assimilates and acquires by force when the federation brings people in first of all they're supposedly and this is another thing that comes becomes an issue in all the star trek series which is about the prime directive which and you can help me make sure i articulate this properly brian that you're not supposed to interfere with any pre warp or developing species in such a way that would um kind of change the path of their natural evolution and then there's also first contact which is the policy of the federation that once a species reaches warp capabilities then a a represent representative from the federation will make contact with them and say hey you're you've they have warp now come join us and so that's more of a a, um well it's an assimilation in a way but it's an assimilation by choice and also it requires some effort on the the part of the uh civilization being assimilated showing that they have maybe not have to prove their worthiness but they have to kind of be in the same um type of, of uh what would you say? I don't want to say class because that's not right.
2: I want to say like maybe the same level of technological advancement. I yeah, guess that's right. I guess emotional maturity might even be something
3: that Yeah, that too. So that that's just kind of my take on it. It is assimilation, it is similar, but it's voluntary because at some point and, and Brian had mentioned earlier that a lot of the plot of Deep Space Nine was, not a lot, but a salient point was that they were thinking of joining the Federation and at some point in the series, I think they decide that that's not what's best for them, even though they, whatever whatever powers that be on Bajor kind of oscillate between whether or not joining the Federation is the best idea for them given their circumstances.
1: Well, back to Deep Space Nine, was it was it an embassy or was it just because it was a convenient space? Was it, I mean, I remember it wasn't a fortress. Because I remember distinctly it took a while before they even gave them a warship and they gave them all of one. I think it was called the Defiant. Yes. Um And it seemed like it was a place of embassy, but also a place of trade and tourism, almost almost like a Las Vegas, you know, with the, with, uh, with a small military presence for diplomatic relations it's almost like when the mob wanted to have peace they went to they went to las vegas it it seemed less u.n and more you know like a casino town
2: yeah it's very much like a a frontier fort out in the wild west i i feel like that's kind of how it was envisioned so uh so you had like this small contingent of starfleet officers and then you had pretty much everyone else that lived there doing their own thing, going to work every day, so. And
1: yet yeah, the Ferengi, who were sort of connivers, and the thing is, Ferengi is a real word, and Ferengi, I think, meant, was like traders, was like nomadic traders.
2: Mm-hmm. So, um, just to go over the characters real quick, because I feel like the characters are, are one of the big, strong points of this series. Captain Cisco, whom I mentioned, um, played by Avery Brooks. Um, you're about my age, so you probably remember Spencer for Hire, Hulk. back in the 80s.
1: He was Hawk, Spencer, yes. and, he, and was he was also in They Live.
2: That's on that show, and um, it just really carried over into this one, and he played the character so well. Um, just the way he approached fatherhood, but also the way that he, he didn't take any shit. <laughs> no, Hawk,
1: Hawk is an amazing character.
3: Yes. Um, he punched Q in the face. Yeah. Q, who is Picard's adversary from
1: next generation, he just straight up punched him in the face. Cisco Picard. did or Hawk did?
3: <laughs> Cisco did.
2: Okay.
1: Well, it would have been better if Hawk did, but okay.
2: Yeah. Um, his first officer is, uh, is Major Kira. Um, she's a former Bajoran terrorist. Um, she really has her own uh, developmental arc throughout the series. She's played by a, a Broadway actress, Nana Visitor she's incredible um and i i can't say enough about her without spoiling several several episodes um you also have chief o'brien from from star trek the next generation kind of like as our our anchor back to that show um he's basically in charge of making sure the station doesn't fall apart um, smacking machinery and cussing out at it very loudly, and drinking a lot of whiskey. Right. So. And if
1: you don't know who he is, he is the actor. If you've ever seen a western or a old timey gangster movie where there's sort of a, like an Irish boss around, mm-hmm. he he plays that character in every movie in western in the last twenty five years. So that, that's that guy.
2: Oh, wow. Colavini is amazing. Um, Jadzia Dax is is the station science officer. So, um, she's a trill, which is a, another species we're, we're kind of introduced to you on the show. Um, she looks humanoid from the outside, um, but on the inside, she has a, uh, a parasite living inside of her that's, um, 300 years old and has lived in multiple different hosts, um, has memories and wisdom and knowledge gained from each host. So she's like Yoda in the body of a supermodel, I guess is the best way to, to put it. And. Um,
3: <laughs> Hi. Go
2: ahead.
3: And also her previous host, Curzon Dax, had been, uh, Captain Sisko's mentor earlier in life. So one thing that's super endearing about it is, uh, Jadzia Dax is a young woman, I'd say probably in her late twenties, maybe early thirties, but he calls her old man because that's how he knew Curzon Dax is as an old man. So I thought that was pretty cool. And um, on the flip side of that, we have
2: the station's doctor, Dr. Bashir, who, um, for the first couple of seasons is a walking HR problem and, um, totally hits on Dax every chance he gets. Um, but it's cool though, that because this is actually one of the first Arab American, uh, regular characters that we see on a regular basis. So it's cool to have that representation representation as well. Um, and he does get more mature as the series goes on and a lot less obnoxious, thankfully. Um, then we get Odo, um, who is the station's, uh, chief of security. Um, Odo is a shapeshifter for the first couple of seasons. We don't know who his people are, and he's on this quest to figure out who they are. And then he finds out that they're actually space fascists who want to take over, um, the entire galaxy, so, uh, good times. Uh, he also has a, a, a romantic relationship with Kira later in the season, or later in the series. Um, we have Quark, um, who is the uh, the barkeeper. Um, basically, has, he's, a, he's a Ferengi, uh, a character we were introduced to in TNG that you mentioned earlier. Um, very much driven by profit and greed. Um, comes into conflict with Odo quite a lot, and um, his and Odo's dialogue is really kind of a nice hearkening back to Spock and McCoy from the original series. I feel like if you had to find a a parallel to that, Odo and Quark probably have the the best dialogue since, since McCoy and Spock, I think. I would agree on the
1: relationship, but I would say if you want a parallel to the original series, if Harry Mudd was a race, it would be the Ferengi.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'd say definitely. Um, to a lesser extent, we have Jake Sisko, who is uh, Captain Sisko's dad, um, who is who's just hanging out as far as I know. I don't think he has a really big arc on the series. There's an occasional Jake-centered episode, but um, I guess the, the kindest way to describe him is a, a less obnoxious version of Wesley Crusher. Um, he's, he doesn't know it all. He's not a technical wizard or anything like Wait, that. Wait,
1: he's his son or dad?
2: He's his
1: son. You said dad. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't. I didn't remember a dad. I did remember a son, and I'm like, well, I'm, I'm not the expert here, but okay. That no, that that yeah, makes sense. Son,
2: always um, it, his teenage son. Like every um,
1: now and then, he gets into trouble, or he's kidnapped, or something like that. But uh, yeah, but he's more it like the kids it. from Raymond. You never see. You basically never see him.
0: I will say that. Thing. Go ahead. Jake was the. I would say focus of probably
3: one of the best episodes of deep space nine, which was the visitor, Mm -hmm. um, which was, I, I -hmm. wouldn't even know how to describe it. It's like kind of an unstuck in time, um, situation. And it 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 really showcases his relationship with his father. Mm -hmm. And, um, also it's, it's really hard to explain but you guys have to watch it it's a really great episode it's one of the best of any series
2: and then later in the season uh later in the series rather um season four uh Worf from TNG joins the cast um Worf doesn't really develop much um he hooks up with Dexia Dax and marries her but he's still a lousy dad and um doesn't open doors
1: well, so. <laughs> I think he was just there to help them with a, with a military presence.
3: Yeah, with the ratings, basically. <laughs> well, that's it. I um, think he was there for sex appeal and no other reason.
1: Well, also, um, it wasn't didn't the next generation go off the air and they wanted some characters to keep eyes, keep a, a, a transition?
2: Yeah, yeah, and also, uh, they, they kind of did a soft reboot of, of Deep Space Nine in season four, so the Klingons really became integral to the storyline again. Um, there was a whole, I don't know if it was an all out war, but um, peace was no longer an option between the Federation and Klingons. So uh, so it got interesting there for a while and Worf was brought on kind of like a liaison, I guess. And then he became, I think the ships, or the station's strategic operations officer, something like that. Um, not to dwell too much more on Deep Space Nine because I know we have a lot more ground to cover, but Deep Space Nine definitely opened the door for darker storytelling. Um, there, there were um, were storylines that pretty much dominated the last two seasons as far as like, the main work, but you also had episodes about things like homelessness and um, attempted suicide and and um, the the perils of a, of a poorly run prison system all kinds of stuff
1: so well you have the dominion which was basically this uh, sort of all-encompassing alliance but it was basically run by the the race that odo was part of and I, I can't i he was he was from benson he was like the jerk in the governor's office in benson yes his name is like renee something uh it's like a, right it's a big french name but i remember they also had they had like their yeah. warriors were basically like a a slave race, but once you got to know them, they, they, they didn't, they were like sort of like the centurions from Balsar Galactica. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't really have a choice in what they were doing. And they had, they had a, they had an interesting name that I think is also real words from like uh, old Arabic, but they were called the is Jeb like Hadar.
3: Hadar. Oh yeah. We love the Jeb um, Hadar. Um, what would you, how would you describe them, Brian? Um, they are grown in test tubes,
2: basically, so they're like an army you can grow out of nothing, basically, and they're dependent on a particular substance called tetracell white for their existence, and um, basically they're like drug addicts that you can make an army out
1: of. Like, like so the clones any- from Star Wars, drugs. except they were dependent on, yeah, so sort of unthinking, but they actually had thoughts, but the drugs suppressed their thoughts, like they had... They had individuality that crept out every now and then. The, the, like, nothing was all... They weren't all evil.
3: Right. Well, and also, there wasn't at least one episode where we meet some Jem'Hnar who are marooned on a planet. They're basically going through withdrawal, of right. uncatchable...
1: Yep, she froze.
3: Um, uh, more as, you know, di- distinct beings than they are as part of, part of an army, or, or what have you. And... The Gem Hadar are kind of managed by a race of aliens called the Vorta. Vorta, yep. Yeah. Vorta. And uh, the most famous one that, or famous, the most notorious Vorta we meet is Wayoon, played by the great Jeffrey Combs, who is a Star Trek legend. Um, and they, the, the Vorta are just in charge of. They're like the they're like the uh, the branch managers of of the uh of, of the Gemdar. They they have their own armies or their own um purview and they make sure that they do what they need to do.
2: They're like the Stephen Millers of the Trump administration basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're there to do the dirty work. Yeah. It, okay. So that's yeah. very apt. <laughs> Real quick, I do want to go over a couple of supporting characters, just because I'd be very lax if I didn't mention Gold Ducat, um, who's the main villain of the series. Um, he is just evil personified. He's just sleazy and calculating and fundamentally evil. There are occasional attempts to make him a nice guy, but it never lasts for very long. Um, I should also mention Space Karen, a.k.a. Kai Win, who is the leader of the uh, the Bajoran religion on Bajor. Um, I, I wrote down that she was just insufferably haughty and she's just like the personification of every hypocrit- uh, hypocritical Christian you'd ever meet in your
3: life. Played by Louise Fletcher, AKA okay. Nurse Ratched from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yes. Um, Garrick
2: is also a very important character on the show. Um, he is he- the show. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, played by Andrew Robinson. Um, you probably remember from Dirty Harry. Um, he's a tailor aboard the station that used to be a spy. It might still be a spy and is definitely gay for Dr. Bashir. So um, that, that's a whole thing. That's really what I got on Deep Space
1: Nine. Okay. Well, that no shortage of stuff there. Um, um, there's a lot. But, didn't, but the next generation in Deep Space Nine, they overlapped each other, and purposely so, and so did the stories.
2: Mm-hmm. They did. Now, Voyager, on the other hand, um, was, was very much a departure. So um, Voyager premiered in 1995. Um, I was a freshman in college at the time. Um, it was actually the flagship show of the dearly departed UPN, Um right there with uh, Homeboys from Outer Space.
0: Mm.
2: Yes. Classic. Um, (laughs) And uh, in another non-very progressive casting, um, Kate Mulgrew was actually cast as the... Well, she wasn't the first choice, but that's another story. But she was cast as the the first female starship captain.
1: Right. I I look at her as a revenge for all husbands whose wives said, why couldn't you just ask for directions?
2: You know... (laughs) But you also give her a, a Starship named after a minivan, which I don't think is quite fair. <laughs>
1: <but> <laughs> okay, fair enough. I think but, also a space shuttle, um, but, you know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, the role had originally been given to an actress by the name of Jean-Pierre Bujold. Um, she actually quit after, I think, two days of filming and decided that episodic TV just wasn't her bag. So um, so Kate Bolger stepped in and uh, just pretty much ran with it.
1: Seemed um, like uh, jo- Joie de V or whatever her name was, made a very bad choice.
2: Yay! Maybe for her mental health, it was probably the best choice at the time.
1: Because- hey, You kids with the sure mental health.
2: ...you're talking like 12 to 15 hour work days on a good day. So if you don't come from that kind of stock, I can imagine that you know a, a full day's work like that will probably wear on you.
1: I come from the stock well, that did wants intergenerational we're, wealth, but okay.
3: <laughs> we're, we're also looking at this from the perspective of a finished product and a success. Mm-hmm. And a large part of that success was Kate Mulgrew. So we never knew that she might have, this other actress might have royally screwed it up and it would have been canceled after two seasons.
2: This so is true. Yeah.
1: We don't know what could have happened.
3: That's that is,
2: on YouTube of her. And, um, Looking at that and then looking at Kate Mulgrew, um, it's probably better that we didn't get jean Bujol.
1: <laughs> um, is Kate Mulgrew, was she read on Orange is the New Black?
2: She was. Okay. Yeah, she so, was. so that's where people um, would know
1: her from if you didn't know her from uh, Voyager.
2: And if you're a senior citizen like me, um, you probably know her as Mrs. Columbo, um, a.k.a. Kate Loves a Mystery. Um, she was also on um, Ryan's Hope, I think one of the main stars on on that soap opera back in the early 80s.
3: She also had several notice, notable guest spots on Murder, She Wrote over the years. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. I just thought I'd put that in. With, you know, outgoing too much about on a Gresham. there is a lot of crossover between Star Trek and Murder, She Wrote <laughs> on a lot of these characters because they were, they were all, it all ran at the same time so if you're getting like uh you know, actors who do guest star guest spots they would normally you know, overlap quite a bit
1: Sure, but the overlap that I like is from the original Star Trek and Land of the Lost I mean, Walter Koenig actually wrote some of the episodes and it's there's a lot of Star Trek in, in Land of the Lost
2: I did not know this
1: Oh, yeah. Well, to plug my own podcast, which is silly because if you're listening to this, chances are you've listened to that. But just in case you're followers of Elizabeth and or brian or just star trek um one of my running episodes is that we do reviews of land of the lost and we do about seven episodes at a time and we are we well by the time i dropped this i'm not sure where we'll be but the last recorded episode took us through season two episode nine and there's only three seasons up to episode 13 so we're taking our time we're having fun so if you haven't checked those episodes out check them out <laughs> that's so cool
2: well um... Going back to Voyager, um, the series is set aboard the USS Voyager, which is a a starship that has been flung um, halfway across the galaxy into a place called the Delta Quadrant, which is basically like middle of nowhere, where no one knows where anything is. Um, It's about an 80-year trip back home, so um, it's a long way home. Uh, Their ship has to join uh, join forces with a militant faction that broke away from the Federation, known as the Maquis. Um, The Maquis is a a story concept that um, started on the Next Generation and was continued into... No, I take that back. It started on Deep Space Nine, bled into some Next Generation storylines, and then found its conclusion on Voyager. So, um, basically... To go over the Maquis real quick, the Federation and the Cardassians settled a territory dispute by giving up some of the planets that were kind of on their border. And um, the Maquis were settlers that were asked to leave, you know, like, hey, guys, maybe it's a good idea, you know, if you don't, you know, put yourselves in harm's way anymore and come back into the Federation. And they're like, no, screw you guys, this is home, and we're not leaving, and you can't make us leave. And they start organizing terrorist attacks against the Cardassians, and um, also terrorist attacks against the Federation. So they're kind of like the Ann and Bundys, I guess, of Star Trek.
1: But the, I, I guess the point of it is, if the Maquis could get to that quadrant, that means the Voyager could get back to their home within a lifetime.
2: Basically, well, they were all they were all thrown out there by some kind of space oddity known as the caretaker. Um, they were traveling through a region of space with a lot of turbulence, and uh, they hit some kind of a um, a technobabble wave of some sort, and uh, find themselves all transported into the Delta Quadrant.
1: Well, Elizabeth and- was leaning forward in a threatening manner into the press, so I'm sure she has something to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I was I was going to say exactly what Brian said is that uh, the Maquis ended up there
3: by accident and so did Voyager. Uh, so they weren't following them into the delta quadrant. They were following them into like a certain part of the alpha quadrant and then they just ended up, you know, far flung eight years so, the, and but, they, change
1: away. but they're also not a storyline device to have a solution. They're, they're, they're they they had the same problem, and they're, they're no close yeah. to any solution. In fact, the Maquis, if I, I, mean, I don't remember the story, but it seems like they're, they're okay being alone over there.
2: Yeah, exactly. The the Federation was actually in pursuit of the Maquis ship. They were trying to chase them down and bring them to justice, and they all wind up in the Delta Quadrant together by accident. Um, the Maquis ship is destroyed and um, all of their crew beams over to Voyager, and uh, Janeway has to kind of adopt this crew into her own, um, help them find jobs aboard the ship, and they all have to learn how to get along and work together to get back home in one piece. And this is
3: also interesting because this whole like blended crew situation, Um, Like gives rise to a lot of plot lines about Starfleet Protocol and the Prime Directive and whether or not in a situation like this, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of light years from home is what's the best way to act? Is Starfleet Protocol still the right thing? Does it even apply? So a lot of that tension, it, it serves as a plot device. And it's it's really interesting to
2: me. Yes. Uh, One of
1: the cool things about Voyager... It's funny because, um, I'm sorry, because Battlestar Galactica, you know, has the same issue. Do the rules of the 12 colonies still apply when there are no 12 colonies when we're just on the run? And it's all about moral ambiguity. And I think the interesting thing about Star Trek is this thing with the Maquis, maybe the first time that there was sort of a moral ambiguity within Starfleet itself... Uh everything was a an utopia, and you had, you know, one man's terrorists as another man's freedom fighter. I mean, they they thought they were the displaced, you know, indigenous peoples from that area. Um, you know, but the Federation said, hey, listen, there's gonna be a war if you don't move and it's for the greater good. And the the well, I'm gonna say the Kardashians, because I don't care that it's the Kardashians the, the Kardashians were gonna come and, you know, fashion them to death, I guess.
2: Well,
1: with plastic and- surgery.
3: <laughs> Sorry, I was gonna say something and I completely forgot what I was gonna say. I, I I have that effect oh, no, no, on people. Actually, I I remember it. Okay. Um. So, apropos of the tension within Starfleet, um, it's supposed to be this Federation Starfleet are supposed to be kind of these utopian ideals, but we see a lot of bureaucratic drama that goes on in. Uh, starting with the next generation all the way up through Voyager for the most part is a lot of times you'll get people disagreeing and, and admirals making the wrong decisions and captains going rogue and that kind of thing, which eh, it's a little less clear when you're out in the middle of the Delta Quadrant and you don't have anybody to directly answer to. But I also thought it did a pretty good job of showing the tension between, like, a an administrator or a decision-making person versus someone who's in the field. Mm-hmm. So, that was my digression.
2: <laughs> um, one thing that's nice about Voyager 2, because Deep Space Nine was really serialized. I feel like Deep Space Nine actually was one of the first serialized... Versions of Star Trek where you kind of had to have an idea of what happened in the last few episodes to understand what was happening in front of you at whatever point you're watching. Voyager, not so much. Voyager, you can pretty much turn on any episode of Voyager and not really need to know a lot about what happened before, if that makes any sense. Sure, it does. Um,
3: yeah, when, that was a lot. It's a lot more like The Next Generation than it was yeah. like Deep Space Nine.
1: Which series yeah. was Seven of Nine on?
2: She she's on Voyager.
1: Oh yeah. Yes.
2: So we'll come to her. Um just to kind of go over the crew. Oh like, yes we Captain did. <laughs> aside from Captain Janeway, we also have uh, her first officer, um, Chicote. Chakotay. Um Chakotay's kind of full of problems. <laughs> um he was, he was written as a Native American character from an indeterminate tribe we know not what. Um, there's really some kind of problematic aspects to that character because he was conceived by someone, Elizabeth, you may know more about the conception of the character than I do in this case. Um, wasn't he written by someone who claimed to be an expert in Native American culture, but was actually kind of bullshitting his way through that?
3: don't know, and I should have looked into it, but one thing that we should notice is that Chakotay was the Maquis captain. Yes. And Captain Captain Janeway appointed him as her first officer over Tuvok, the Vulcan Federation officer, or uh, Starfleet officer, as a way of, I guess, showing good faith to the Maquis to say, you know, we're not just going to treat you guys as schlubs. We're going to put you in leadership positions and actually like make this an active partnership versus, but yeah, the, the, the Chakotay situation, there's lots of, uh, kind of checking the boxes on what a white person would think that a native American or a native an indigenous person would do things like, uh-huh talking to animals and spirit quests and just kind of a lot of woo-woo stuff.
2: Yeah, it gets really cringy. Like, there's a whole episode about him discovering the origin of the giant pascule on his face. Yeah, I, he's... even aside from all of that, he's just not a very interesting character, so... Um, eh. And he's played by Robert Beltran, and frankly, I, I don't know a whole lot about his resume. Um, I want to say he was in a movie called Eating Raul, which kind of has a cult following. Besides from that, I don't know much about his background.
1: I've seen Eating Raul, yeah. it's very overrated.
3: I also feel like the one or two situations where they tried to give him backstory and develop him into like a deep character, it didn't hit right because it came out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I I just remember one where he's sick and he's screaming about how much pain he's in and it's just so jarring that I didn't even want to watch it because it just didn't compute.
2: Oh, in in the last season of Voyager, there's episodes where Chakotay is, like, hooking up with Seven.
3: Oh, I heard about
2: that. I haven't gotten there yet. Out of nowhere. Like, why?
1: (laughs) Why? (laughs) Because he could.
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, well, we'll, we'll come to that. Um, let's talk about Tuvok real quick. Well,
3: he, he also hooks up with Janeway whenever they're stranded yeah. on that planet.
2: Yeah, Chakotay's just kind of a kind of a tool. I don't care for the guy. <laughs> um, Tuvok is played by Tim Russ um, as Elizabeth alluded to. He is the chief of security aboard the ship. Um, he is very much your traditional full-blooded Vulcan, very stoic but also uh, very capable of uh, letting the sarcasm run freely. Um, he doesn't really have any big arcs aboard the show. So, But um, he's, he's Captain Janeway's confidant. Um, she, he is pretty much like the first person she'll come to whenever she's having her own issues that she needs to work out. So um, in that respect, their relationship is very much like Kirk and Spock, I feel.
1: Without Spock's uh, sort of inner struggle.
2: Exactly, exactly. But they're definitely very close friends. Um, Balana Torres is the ship's chief engineer. She's half human and half Klingon. Um, She's definitely one of the more dynamic characters. Um, She could have been portrayed, I guess, as more stereotypical hot-headed Latinx, but I feel like the actress, Roxanne Dawson, just really brought a whole lot of depth the character and just really made you care about her um she
3: was also she was also a maquis so she's another one they brought on in a leadership kind of position whenever uh they integrated crews
1: were the maquis more ethnically diverse than the federation crew it sounds like uh, the two maquis characters you've described so far are you know sort of do check those boxes i don't know if it's just coincidence or not. Tupac is is a klingon.
3: He's black, so he checks that
1: box. Right. I, I guess yes. if he's a klingon, klingon. he's not African American because okay. he's not African or American. Um he's a vulcan. Um okay. All right, i, I this is the sh- this is the show i know the least about as i said earlier and and i don't remember any Jakote. Um there's
3: a reason for that.
1: <laughs> and, and I and I confused. Uh, and when you were talking about the uh, the security officer, I got her confused with the I think the security officer from Deep Space Nine.
2: Well, aside from Bolana, you have Tom Harris, who is the ship's pilot. Um, he's basically like a Han Solo type. Um, he and Bolana get married later on in, in the in the seasons. But aside from that, he's just like your general. I don't know, adventurer-type. There's not really any distinguishing characteristics about him, I'd say. Um, maybe well, I'm not nice. <laughs> he
3: he was... He's the son of an ad, a Starfleet admiral... And he he apparently ended up on some kind of prison colony, which is where Janeway found him. Like, she went to him specifically and got him out of space jail to go on this mission because of some special expertise of his. And that's just something that he seems to struggle with throughout the entirety of the uh, series is... Like, his identity. Like, where, what am I? Am I Starfleet? Am I, you know, something else? And then he really likes kind of those old, kitschy... He goes like Captain Proton, but it's like a, um an, a, like an old, like, 1950s space TV show where everything's made of tinfoil and uh, all the aliens have really big hair.
2: yeah. Yeah, he's very much into, like, fixing old cars and and his Captain Proton cosplay on the holodeck and stuff like that. Um, Aside from that, though, he just never really resonated with me as an interesting character. The actor, though, Robert Duncan McNeil, um, he's actually a director of some note nowadays. Um, He directed several episodes of Chuck, I want to say, maybe even a
0: few episodes of Voyager, um i think he's directing some episodes
2: of the new turner and hooch remake on disney plus so uh, he's he's still a working director at least
1: can i ask a question about voyager i mean i think that you know we all know the original star trek i mean i don't know that they had a, a broad mission but gene roddenberry had a vision of sort of a better universe and humanity being a force for good and and egalitarianism sure the next generation was sort of to further that uh, even further into the the galaxy deep space nine sort of made it a made universe building uh you know with with the embassy and the politics and sort of bring some religion and conflict into it and then voyager just seems like they sort of thrust them out there sort of on on the side spur and, and i'm wondering where it fits into the star trek universe unless it was just to explore the moral ambiguity of things, which I think they sort of did on Deep Space Nine with the diplomacy and duplicity.
2: Well, Voyager, I guess the more I think about it now, having just rewatched it recently, I feel like a a good bit of that is getting two disparate groups of people who have very little ideology in common, putting them together for common cause, in this case, trying to get home. So the Maquis did want to get home right yeah everyone wanted to go home everyone had friends back on earth and family and, and everything else they're not out there just to explore they're out there because they want to get home so and that's kind of the driving force behind the show and i think maybe this is something we could probably benefit from now as a country considering where we are now in this in this polarized state but you know just people who don't come from the same backgrounds or believe in the same things, learning to work together and and, and find some kind of common unity.
1: Pizza. I'm sorry? Pizza. That that's sure. that, that's something that everybody should be able to get behind is pizza.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Or you know, getting back home for fresh
1: pizza. Yeah, well this show's called yeah. Garden of Doom. We're not about saving the world here. Except we <laughs> except we did have a few episodes. We had one called Garden of Hope where we did actually save the world if people would listen.
3: Oh well uh, aside, go ahead, aside from the Federation or the Starfleet and the Maquis, we actually do get two crew members, at least initially who are from the Delta Quadrant, oh, yes. which are Neelix and Cass, which um I I'm going to let you kind of talk more about them, but that that it is, in addition to this kind of bringing together this ragtag crew of people headed towards the Alpha Quadrant, um, they do pick up a few stragglers on the way. Absolutely.
2: Um, just kind of round out the rest of the, the original crew, um, we have Harry Kim. Um, he's the ship's operations officer. Um, he's just like brand new out of Starfleet Academy. Um very green around the gills, um, very eager to please. Um, really has no story arc. Uh, he misses his girlfriend back on earth, he plays the clarinet, and that's all I have to say about Harry Kemp. And he never gets promoted. Yeah. Uh one of the No one
1: on that ship here. should get promoted. They're, <laughs> they're lost. <laughs>
2: one of the more fascinating characters on the show is the ship's doctor um who never get to name um he's played by Robert Ricardo who's just an amazing character actor from across several decades first thing I remember him from is the howling way back in like 1979 1980 somewhere
1: it, in it was in the 80s the howling great movie d yes. Wallace uh one of the great werewolf movies of all time
2: the doctor is an amazing character um Basically, when the ship goes into the Delta Quadrant, they lose a bunch of key officers, um, one of them being the ship's doctor. So they have to use the holographic doctor on the ship. Um, He has no bedside manner to speak of. Um, He has a lot of sarcasm, though, um, and he's not really there to uh, take anyone's BS. people are really rude to him, they like leave him running, like they'll walk out of sick bay and leave his program running and he doesn't know how to turn himself off, um, he spends kind of the first couple of seasons being confined to sickbay, um, so any, any action where he's involved really kind of has to come to sick bay for him to, to get in on it, um, in the middle of season three, he gets like a mobile emitter that allows him to leave Bay and uh, like go on missions to planets and stuff like that. And lets him really just like break out and interact with the rest of the crew. Um, but more to the point, he's really like, aside from Seven, he's one of the like the Spock characters in that he's really kind of learning what it means to be human. So, and you really see him progress through that as the series goes on. He, uh, he gets really big into opera, um, oh, you know, Elizabeth, what else does he do? Um,
3: at one point he has a holodeck family and they oh, have yeah. to tell him that his, this weird leave it to beaver, uh, idealized family isn't the norm and, and that kind of thing and he also, though he also goes on a lot of missions um, for them as well, like especially in situations where it would be too dangerous to send an actual person or you know organic life form, they will send him. Yeah.
2: Um, on to Neelix, who is played by another um, alumnus of uh, of Benson, um, Ethan Phillips. Um,
3: I love Neelix. <laughs> He's
2: Neelix's my favorite. Very much a polarizing character. Um, he, he comes from a race introduced as Talaxians. Um, Talaxians are uh, kind of scavengerish, I guess. He's kind of like another Han Solo character. Um, he kind of comes aboard as sort of like a scoundrel type character, but then he, he turns into the ship's cook and morale officer, and I guess guy for the rest of the crew as they learn how to navigate through the Delta Quadrant. Um, He has some knowledge of like indigenous species, Um, when they go to different planets he can tell you what's good to eat, uh, what you probably shouldn't be eating, stuff like that.
1: Is Um, he from the Delta Quadrant?
2: He is. His race is native to the Delta Quadrant. Okay. So, um, in his words, he does wonderful things with vegetables.
1: (laughs) Sounds good, I guess.
2: Um, he is in a relationship with, uh, with Kess. Um, Kess is an O'Koppin. Um, they're another race indigenous to the Delta Quadrant. Um, they have a lifespan of roughly about eight or nine years. And when we meet Kess, she's two years old. Um, she's played by actress Jennifer Lean, who thank God did not look two at the time, (laughs) but, um, it's still kind of a kind of a gross relationship when you think about Felix being kind of like a middle aged dude and Cass being not quite a teenager, so if you think too hard about it it's it's really kind of icky, yeah um that being said, um she's got like just a very natural curiosity curiosity and intelligence. Um, she becomes the doctor's assistant in sickbay. So she's basically like his nurse and um, decided uh, the writers eventually wrote her out of the show, which was really unfortunate.
1: Yeah. Well, how are you going to age her so quickly?
3: Well, I don't what they think did it was they didn't age her. What they did was she had telepathic powers and towards her end, uh, the end of her run on the show, she had been developing them in such a way that, you know, spoiler alert, at the end of her time on the show, she basically, like, you know, uh,
2: transfigures into a being of pure light and just disappears. That's lovely. But that pays like, for, uh, for seven and nine. Finally. Yes. So, Seven of Nine is a former Borg that is taken in by Voyager and restored mostly to her human form. Um, So her time aboard the the series, which is from season four to the end of the run, is basically about her learning to reacclimate to life among humans. Um, She she butts heads with Janeway a lot. For the first couple of seasons she's on there, they're pretty much constantly at loggerheads. Janeway kind of becomes a maternal figure, I guess, for Seven and Nine. Um, she's really intelligent. Um, kind of my, my gripe about Seven and Nine is that she's kind of used as a, a deus ex-machina to, like, solve the problem of the week with her Borg nanoprobes, but, um, she and the Doctor really did kind of get the biggest story arcs of the rest of the crew, um, and also, I wrote down she wore uncomfortable cat suits to get ratings, which, yeah, she yeah. she has stories about those cat
1: suits. The well, show's um, a she little bit obsessed with Pinocchio, like uh, in you know, not exactly organic creatures trying to become real boys,
3: right?
2: From well,
1: Spock to Dave, you know, on and on. I think her delivery um
3: Lines, her tone, and whatever the writers, whatever persona they came up with for her was just chef's kiss. Like it was perfect because she's that weird kind of like straightforward that comes across as aggressive, but it's also just factual. Like a lot of times, she says "explain" or "clarify," and, and that's like her whole sentence. And she refers to the one little child on the ship as subunit of Ensign Wildman, which but, I thought I I relate to very uh very much, not knowing and what to do with children.
2: Right. She's played by Jerry Ryan, who just plays her to a T. Um, the the way the the wine delivery is done. Um, there's an episode that is kind of gross when you think about it. But there's an episode where the Doctor inhabits seven of nine's body, and basically you have Jerry Ryan playing the Doctor. Um, and just the way she's able to shift gears into a completely different personality on on the drop of the hat, it's just incredible. So, kudos to Jerry Ryan. I I know that could not have been easy playing that role. Um. Yeah, it's a tough one. Um, there's not really a whole lot of additional characters that show up. Um, there is a Naomi Wildman that Elizabeth alluded to, um, which, you know, you brought this up earlier. Every series kind of gets its own designated cute kid, and uh, she was it. Um, she becomes Captain Janeway's personal assistant and um, Playmate 279. Um, you get Seska who is the bad guy for season, seasons one and two, really. Um, she's a Cardassian operative who uh, was undercover as a Bajordan among the Maquis. Um, and she goes off to join um, an alien race called the Kazon, which are basically like a bad version of the L.A. street gangs. They're like Klingons, but without personality, I guess. Um, Sounds like a bad
1: rap group, Klingons without personality.
2: Ah, pretty much. And then you also get Ichab, which is another Borg character. Um, they find a, a Borg queue with a, a, a few kids, a few Borg kids left alive. And uh, Ichab is the leader of that group of kids, and he kind of becomes um, Seven's um, protégé, I guess, for lack of a better term. And then, um, I, I wrote this down, Barkley, I, and I guess... You see him more in The Next Generation, really. Um, but he also shows up for several stories in Season 6 and 7 of Voyager and is kind of integral to helping them find their way home.
1: Do they ever get home?
2: They do. Very last episode. like They pull up on Earth in the last like two minutes of the show, and that's it. It just ends with them showing up at Earth like, hey, we're home.
1: And what's the timetable for them? Are they around the same time as Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, or is it a different time period?
2: Um, it's taking place concurrent in that, in that whole universe. So it's really, um, as Deep Space, it's starting, I want to say, season three of Deep Space Nine. So that's really kind of where it picks up. So it's all concurrent in that universe.
1: Okay. So they just come back, they just get home, and I guess the war is is with the dominion is done and so everyone's not like you missed the whole thing you jerks so they're more like we're happy to see you we don't know what the reaction is
2: yeah we never know
1: wouldn't it be fun if they went there and it, and like they came back but they went back in time 700 years or they went forward in time you know a few generations and no one knew who they were maybe that happened we don't know that this been... happens a lot
3: in episodes, Lots of time traveling mm-hmm. to the future or the past to prevent or complete things, so mm-hmm. that's not out of the realm of
1: possibility. Yeah, I see, I see. Happen. Time travel is very easy. I've, I've, if I've learned one thing from Star Trek, it's very easy to travel through time. Much, much easier to travel through time than to get home.
2: <laughs> but that's really kind of uh, my dossier on Voyager, on um, I started out not really caring for Voyager during its original run, but I think it's actually been kind of comforting to watch, especially in the last year of like lockdown, Um, having a a maternal figure like, like Catherine Janeway out there kind of using her brains and using science and and everything to kind of keep, keep the pace steady and get everyone home in one piece. That's kind of comforting in this day and age. So.
1: Okay. So, what's what what are our general like our big themes like what what is i mean i tried to put my spin on it but i'm an amateur i'm a cash i'm a casual what would you guys describe <laughs> as as the big themes of of each of the shows and where were they supposed to take us and where did they take us or you guys um
2: for me it's optimism really um it's just the overarching theme i think of each series is that we can all learn to overcome our differences and learn to find the best of humanity in each other and and figure figure out a way to unite and, and solve problems together. And who doesn't want that? Especially now.
1: I'd say inclusivity, um You know
3: just because of the nature of starfleet and the federation the nature of all the alliances that we see throughout the course of all the series and also the simple fact that you can have these four completely different captains that are widely held as great captains and be so completely different you know kirk's the renegade picard's the man of letters a cisco's a combination of a politician and a prophet and janeway is the scientist and the pragmatist so i just think it's really interesting to see them all coexist in more or less the same position all
1: right well from a casual plus perspective i will say that i, I think that uh even though there is optimism there's also a little bit of cynicism mess, mixed in there i mean we have to remember kirk got his position by cheating. He cheated to, gotcha. to pass the Kobayashi Maru. So that's always viewed as a victory, but it's also, you know, no one else did it. There's other captains who became captains, uh, but he's, he's the one who cheated and got that plum assignment. The other mm-hmm. thing is that Kirk also basically sexed down basically anything he could. Now that's more a sign of the times than <laughs> probably any giant moral issue. Uh, I guess you could call it an ex. Inclusivity, because uh, you know it, it didn't matter diplomacy. race, color, creed—you know anything. Right, diplomacy, very, very close and personal di- diplomacy. Um, but the other thing about Star Trek—oh my goodness! In, in the first seasons, I, I'm trying, I'm trying to think of where I was going to go with it, with the the Kirk sort of cheating. Oh. And then we get to the the newer versions. Oh, actually first the 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 original pilot that didn't do so well. There was an episode in the original series where they sort of revisited it and take take parts of that and I think it was a it was a trial. I think it was the trial of Kirk, wasn't it? Yes. Where where Captain Pike Spock. Right. Um right. So there so you can see parts of it in there and then I think at some point they release the pilots so that you could watch the whole thing but they, they incorporate that in there but then in the, the newer version of the movies with uh, Chris Pine and uh, Zach Kinto or Kito, whatever his name is uh, where they had our regular Spock in there you know, older, they sort of did an entire timeline reset um, so like the whole thing can start over again uh, what did you think about that?
2: Um, as a as just kind of like a bubblegum bubble sci-fi summer blockbuster, I thought it was a a pretty great movie. Um, I just thought it was a really great way to kind of reboot everything for a younger audience to get into. Um, Do I agree with everything they did? Eh, I don't know. I I don't think retconning the entirety of the series so that they could make some not-so-great movie choices later was a great idea. But in general, um, I thought that the cast was great and I thought the special effects were really well done and it was a great way to modernize
1: it. The, the casting, I would say, was near perfect. I mean, I think that oh, the casting yes. was, was amazing. Um, Absolutely. I, I agree with you that the movies, I mean, the third one was, I mean, let's just call it spade a spade. It was bad. The first one was pretty good. The first one was a good movie. I won't call it a great movie, but it was a good movie. If you love Star Trek, you probably love the first new one. The second one was okay.
3: The second oh, one is okay. Benedict Cumberbatch. It was more than okay.
1: Well, that's probably that's probably yeah. he's like your seven oh nine. I could see that right away. Uh, yeah, no, Benedict Cumberbatch is uh, you know you're not going to get any arguments from me. I mean, I'm I'm very cis or whatever the word is these days, but I I could see that sure. Um, um, I just wanted to to say, and I know nobody
3: asked me, but I'm going to say it anyway. J.J. Abrams didn't actually watch any Star Trek before he made the Star Trek movies. And then he like announced it on a TV show when he was being interviewed by like Stephen Colbert or someone. That made me a little sad.
1: I don't believe um, him. I think he's a liar.
2: <laughs> I was really disappointed by Into Darkness because I, I ride very, very hard for The Wrath of Khan. I think that's just one of the best Star Trek movies ever. Yeah. And it's, like, my go-to comfort movie. So seeing Into Darkness, like, all of the press before it was denying that Khan would have anything to do with it, whatever. And then they they go in and just totally whitewash Khan's character and and then just do a contrivance on the plot of Star Trek Two. Why? Yes,
1: agree. I remember that they came out. It came out around the same time as Iron Man 3. And I remember feeling the same way about both of them disappointed, but they were fine to watch for a summer movie, but as part of a bigger universe that both of those movies were supposed to be part of, I was not happy. Yeah.
2: I mean, for bubblegum sci-fi blockbuster movies, you know, if you want a, a good summer, shoot them up, IMAX kind of movie, they're great.
1: Well, When the ship came up and shot through, I guess where they were having hearings or like the, like the military council, that was amazing. Yeah. That scene was fabulous. Um, oh, yeah. And, and, you know, nothing against Benedict Cumberbatch, but I mean, Khan didn't seem very important. It was almost like an afterthought until he finally let you know that he was Khan. Um, And I don't know, it was sort of sad because Khan is legendary and I don't know, like Khan deserves his own prequel uh, before. I think I think Elle is either really mad at us or she's frozen in place in in the same position for uh, uh, and she can hold her breath for an unusual amount of time. (laughs) Um, so, uh, maybe she's Bajoran or, or something. Um, I didn't originally want to touch on this, but the the new show, I think it's called Discovery. I guess it's probably in season three now. Again, I've only seen season one, but it is definitely a much less clean and much less nicey, nice rendition of. Uh, the Federation and really the the galaxy. I mean, I think it it tries to take Deep Space Nine and then sort of multiply it by ten or twelve and make it grittier.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm still trying to get a beat on it. Um, we're we're getting into season four now. Um, the first three seasons, like the first two, it starts off kind of adjacent to the original series. I think like just it takes place just before the original series. And now they're at a spot in the timeline where we're like, I think like 300 years into the future, which honestly I think is where it should have began. Uh, But it's really cool to see all of the the super advanced tech in like a a very, very far off future Starfleet. Um, But you're right, it's definitely a lot grittier. It's also, with original Star Trek, and TNG and Deep Space Nine. Each of those seasons are like 25, 26 episodes apiece. So you know you have time to have you know like a Picard episode, and a Data episode, and a, a Counselor Troy runs off with the dude episode. Um, but with with the way Paramount Plus does it, you get like maybe 10 to 12 episodes a season. So it's a lot tighter. So you don't have as much room to wander.
1: That's most so, TV these days. Most seasons are, you've got your 9 to 13 seasons, episode seasons. Yeah, I,
2: it's not what we grew up with. So it's kind of, they can't really afford to have like a bad episode or a series of bad episodes. And they, they really have to, you know, pick a plot point and stay on task with it.
1: But you so, also get new TV, you know,
2: 365, you know. That is true. That is true. Um, One thing that I would recommend, if you haven't seen it, uh, this is my plug for Star Trek Lower Decks. Um, You you mentioned animated Star Trek earlier, and this is a relatively new animated series that they have done. And it centers around people who just work ordinary jobs aboard starships. They don't work on the bridge. They work way, way, way below. So it's kind of like...
1: Downton Abbey? (laughs) <laughs> down the Abbey of star trek
2: <laughs> right it's it's very much a, a comic type show it's very it's it's freaking hilarious to be honest um whereas most star trek is aspirational this would be like star trek if you and i worked day jobs aboard the enterprise but our jobs were to like clean the holodecks or Polish the tables or or clear plates
1: in the bars. Okay, at the janitor, you know, the, the, the someone had to wash the bathrooms in Star Trek. It wasn't all self doing. I want to run by you my movie idea, and I'm almost yes. fifty three, so it's very clear I'm never going to make a movie. Um, and it's been <laughs> and it's been very clear probably for at least twenty years if it was ever in doubt. So I don't feel bad about giving this up. So this movie we don't have a we don't have a name until the end. So you you get a movie with a, a young man it's just starting his life, just gets engaged. He just got into an academy. It turns out Starfield Academy. You get to really like him. He excels as everything. You go through his story arc, his whole family, you know, the whole this is us thing. Everyone loves him. And at the end, he goes into his assignment and they they give him his uniform. He's got his red shirt. He's going to work in a security function. And he walks right oh, above yeah. the Star Trek Enterprise and they put the pin on him and his name is Ensign Johnson. And then the, and then his first thing they go, Ensign Johnson, to, to the transporter room. And right there you go down and you see Kirk, Spock, and McCoy and this poor dude in the red. And you know that he's right down he's going to get vaporized at the end of the movie. And then it goes, Ensign Johnson. That's it. That's oh, the movie. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Yeah, take my I money.
1: will watch that movie. I mean that's what's always, happening. Always the 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 random dude in the red shot, they get down there and like w- whether it's three to thirty seconds, he's vaporized.
2: I am so in.
1: All right, yeah. good. So someone out there make that movie. Just just give me a credit. I don't need money. I just want credits.
3: We all want producer credits on this, by the way. Yeah.
1: Please. Inspired by some random idiot on, on a podcast. <laughs> that, that that that's that's all I need. As a matter of fact, like Deadpool, I would actually prefer that to my name on there. Oh. No, like in the credits in Deadpool, like uh, uh, the British villain, a, a a moody teenager, the obligatory CGI sidekick. You know that I want credits like that. The random idiot from a podcast inspired by a random idiot on a podcast. So uh, <laughs> uh, that's a, that's what I want. That's that's how I want my legend to go. All right. Is there anything about Star Trek, any of the shows, the the mission, the largest that, that I missed, that I hijacked, that I didn't let you get to?
2: Um, there is a Star Trek. Um, yeah, oh. echoing at least over here. Yeah, it is. Yeah, a little bit. Um, Star Trek: The Card is probably um one that you'll want to catch. It's kind of like an epilogue to the next generation, and it focuses pretty much on retirement for Captain Picard. So um, that's definitely uh, one worth watching. It's very kind of quiet and uh, cerebral.
1: Is it like Logan?
2: Um, Kind of, yeah. That's probably a good analogy. And then um, there's a new series coming out, I want to say later this year, called Strange New Worlds, which will be focusing on the life and times of Captain Pike. In command of the Enterprise, so uh, that should be
3: that should be fun to watch. I have high hopes for it.
1: Okay, cool. Al,
3: I just want to say that um, not all truckies are the kind of truckies that you would associate with the original stereotype. Like we are everywhere, so. It's okay to like Star Trek. It doesn't make you any less cool. So, hopefully, you know, let let your let your Trek flag fly.
1: That was a little bit scary. You said, "We are everywhere." That was <laughs> that, that was we a little that was a little nefarious. So true. I can That's say so that true. I did work in this in the same workplace as l for it was probably a full year and then were, there were probably some snippets of other times as well. we were on the same projects and never once did she come in wearing a star Trek uniform and not even when there were like comic cons and, and things like that in town. And there were, um, so it's, it's true. She could pass as a normie. Uh, I can't speak to Brian. Um, so, you know, I don't know He'll we'll have to trust him on that one. Um, all right. Well, I thank you guys on, on the Star Trek primer. I think that anybody, they now have a pretty good idea of what they're getting into if they want to watch it or if they just want to take it forward. I, I think that they could do so without being completely confused and have some information on the Star Trek universe. So I thank you guys. I hope that you are inspired to maybe do a deeper dive on the show that you love and do your own podcast covering all these shows and the episodes in some detail. Um, Elle has left us, she was frozen for a long, long time, so she, she's not a fabulous breath holder, which is probably a relief and, and technologically makes more sense. Uh, Brian, thank you very much. Thank uh,
2: you, Jeff, it's been so much fun.
1: Good. Elle, when you hear this, uh, thank you very much. And uh, to the audience, thank you for tuning in and hope you're enjoying theme month so far. And thanks for coming into the garden. Bye, everyone.
0: Cellular has small-town roots, so we tell it like it is. That's why at U.S. Cellular, we don't have any hidden requirements. You can get the latest phone without activation fees, required phone trade-in, or anything like that. No surprises or tricks up our sleeves. Just the phone you really want in a state-of-the-art, nationwide network, built from your town up. We're U.S. Cellular, America's locally grown wireless. Learn more at uscellular.com. Lynn County. Vote yes for a casino. Vote yes to unlocking our potential. Yes for entertainment. Yes for tourism. Yes for our nonprofits to thrive. Yes for our future. Did you know that Lynn County is the largest county in Iowa without a gaming facility? It's time for us to receive the same economic stimulus that casinos bring to other counties. Vote yes to unlocking our potential. A vote yes means now is the time Lynn Wins. For more information, go to lynnwins.com.